So this week I read an article that showed the statistics of the world's consumption of caffeine every year being 300 tons and mostly coming through coffee. And of all the countries in the world, the U.S. is the country that consumes the most coffee every year. Um, And so I want to do this quick multiple choice trivia of how many cups of coffee you think are consumed per day in the U.S. Some of you are scarred by multiple choice quizzes, I know, but... Just bear with me. Uh, A is 1.6 million. B is 60 million. C, 1.6 billion. D, 60 billion. How many cups of coffee are consumed in the U.S. alone each day, not year? The answer is always C, right? You you learned that from Kaplan and from whoever the other, what's the other group called? Princeton Review, uh, yeah. C, 1.6 billion cups of coffee are consumed in the U.S. today. How many people have participated in this statistic today? Have you already had coffee? Oh, wow, there's a big chunk back there. Either you're not participating with me or you didn't drink. How many of you have not yet, but you're going to? Okay, not that many. But, uh, so we have in, in, not just in the U.S., in the whole world, this hyper-accessible drug, I mean drug, but maybe product, I should say, it sounds a better word, uh, where many of us turn to when we're feeling tired or fatigued or, or worn out. So whether it's, some of us, it's the first thing in, in the morning that we think about, we wake up and the first thing we do is go make ourselves a cup of coffee, or it's on our commute to work, it's kind of like our daily routine. A lot of us here, I'm sure your barista knows your name and exactly what you're going to order because you go so often, and others, maybe it's kind of in the middle of the day, your office is hip and cool and provides you with a barista inside, and, and like, you know, all of you with your fancy offices have accessible coffee, um, and you do it, you're, you're grabbing your second or third cup after lunch. But we don't need to think about it, right? It's like muscle memory. Uh, Yeah, you don't have to make a conscious decision every day. When you feel tired, you just go. That's just kind of the automatic, you're on autopilot. I'm going to go get another cup of coffee or I'm going to start with one in the morning. And while millions of us have this easy, easy, habitual even resource to address our physical fatigue, something that I was thinking about this week is not all of us really have that kind of like muscle memory, autopilot response to our spiritual fatigue. It's kind of like more confusing. We meet with me or like one of the pastors and ask, I'm so worn out in my faith, I don't know what to do about it. Or we share about it in our community groups or amongst friends. Or we just kind of sit in it alone, not really knowing what to do. We don't have something as easy as coffee to address our spiritual weariness or fatigue. When you are feeling spiritually worn out or tired, sorry, this thing was going nuts all morning. I blame Pastor Bill. (laughs) I don't know where he is, but this was last week. Um, We don't all have this easy thing for our spiritual fatigue, but what I want to recommend, surprise, surprise, is for us to go straight to the Psalms. Here, in a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that God gave us this beautiful, like, museum-like compilation of all this artwork full of expressions and crafted prayers that we can read and be blessed by or even pray with alongside of the psalmist. And what I love about the psalm, something that I'm so grateful for, is that they lift up God and they praise him. And at the very same time, they have the ability to lift up our souls. Similarly, the psalms not only speak blessings to God, but at the same time, they speak blessings to us. 
And I love that like two sides of the coin that we have in each and every one of them, all 150, that they're worshipful and at the same time, they restore our souls. They're refreshing to us. I think in today's day and age, probably because of the whole millennial thing and like, and also because of the health and wealth gospel being somewhat popular around the world nowadays, is a lot of us are really hypersensitive to reading and viewing the Bible like selfishly. All right, hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch. Going back old school. No, I'm good. Thank you, Jason. Okay. So because of the health and wealth gospel, because of, you know, uh, people tend to criticize this generation about being hyper-selfish, I feel like a lot of us are almost like a little bit too sensitive and afraid that I'm going to read the Bible selfishly. I make it too much about me. And then we have a lot of criticism about the songs that are written nowadays, about how they're so man-centered and not God-centered. And I think a lot of those criticisms are true. However, what I love about the Psalms is that you can never actually do that. They're for that very purpose, to give you something to take for your own, to adopt, to pray, something that is meant to comfort you, something that is meant to bring life to your soul. And so today, what my, my objective, there's very little I can do, but what I pray that the Word of God is going to do today is for us to all leave here being refreshed and comforted, not in a selfish way like we made church about us today, but in a way that we're actually taking God at His Word and allowing it to restore our souls. So today, I have the privilege of doing, uh, preaching out of Psalm 23. And uh, two, three months ago, when the pastors, we were preparing this sermon, Pastor Bill and I had a fight over it about who got to get it. And he, because he's humble and loving, let me take it. And then on Monday, I was like, crap, why did I decide to take this? I should have given it to him. Because I feel like of the most, not just one of the most famous Psalms, but one of the most famous in read and beloved chapters in the whole Bible, I was looking at it on Monday. I'm like, what can I possibly say about this? I should just read it seven time, times or however long it takes to get us to 30 minutes and then we can go home and it'll be a good Sunday. And so I'm like, what can I possibly say? I did write something. I'm not just going to read it for 30 minutes straight. But I'm hoping that just as this psalm has done for centuries of Christians, of brothers and sisters, has restored and refreshed them and made them feel the comfort and love of Jesus in their life. That's my deep prayer. I can't mess that up, right? I hope that we're all going to leave today having been fed and by feeling closeness to Jesus uh, because of Psalm 23. So let's uh, read this together. You can pull out your Bible or you can look up on the screen. Um, Psalm 23. I hope a lot of you, even you already have this memorized, you don't even need to look up or look on your phone. Um, But let's read this together. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside calm waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Psalm 23 speaks of God in two primary and major images that I'm just going to be splitting us and organizing the message into pretty simply. Verses 1 through 4 being the imagery of God as the shepherd, the caring and protective and providing shepherd, and then verses 5 through 6 to close as God in the image of gracious host. And there's a lot of overlap. We don't need to put a crystal clear line in between them, but just for sermon's sake and for organizational sake, we'll do that this morning. So verse by verse, starting from the top, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I don't know if you are like me, but when I read the Bible or start my devotional in the mornings or even just like studying and preparing for, for, a, for a community group or whatever, I don't know why. I just quickly read. I'm just like not paying attention. I just kind of go, 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 and I'm reading through, and I definitely don't want us to do that as we approach Psalm 23 this morning. Verse 1, I mean, I don't want to put like hierarchy of importance on these verses. They're all important, but we cannot skip over verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. In calling God his shepherd, David is expressing this full-out, complete trust in God as his caretaker. He lacks nothing. And this, verse 1, acts very much as a heading for the rest of the psalm, and all the rest that comes after it that I'll be reading are just further expressions of that truth, that he is his shepherd. And what I want to do, again, I want to pause and maybe spend a little bit extra time on verse 1 before we go into anything else, because I would love for us to just meditate on and for me to ask the question to you, church, today, do we realize how much we have in Christ Jesus that we, alongside of our brother David, can say, I lack nothing. I love this prayer, this poem, this psalm, and how he begins it. Because a lot of us have so many competing, competing longings that just stretch and pull our hearts and our minds' attention away. But when we think about what we have and saying that our caretaker, our provider, our protector is the Lord God, What else could I possibly need or even long for? So David expands on this idea. He says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside calm waters. Both green pastures and calm waters, I mean, you you, you get it. You get the imagery. He's going with the shepherd motif. And where else are sheep most taken care of? Or provided for but green pastures and calm water. So David uses this nature illustration to describe the abundance of provision from God. He is not just given the bare minimum, but he is overly blessed and taken care of. He says he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Having God as his divine shepherd, his caretaker, brings vitality to him. It's refreshing and restorative. It's not heavy or burdensome, but life-giving. And I love this sentence, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Because in the Hebrew, we get this, um, when when you and I, or maybe just me, when I think of the word lead, I'm always, it, it kind of feels almost like, bossy or, or very directive and like task-oriented, but in the Hebrew, it's very relational. 
It's very much the image of a shepherd who lovingly tends and guides his sheep, isn't like forcing them into a pen or prodding and goading them and getting them to move out of frustration, but rather of longing to be together and intimacy in leadership. Because when we follow the divine shepherd, we find that we are restored and not worn out. Do you ever find yourself feeling like you're following God and you get more tired than restored? I wonder if it's because we start losing focus of the type of leadership that God really has over us in our lives as a shepherd, as someone who wants the best for us all times. I want to share a story about a person who I don't know personally, and I don't think any of us knows personally, but who I feel like who has fully embraced this idea that God is her shepherd and nothing can shake that, and I think it's proven through her testimony in life. Uh, This woman up here, many of you know who she is. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata, for those of you who don't know, and she has become over the years a very influential, um, inspiring Christian leader for the church and for many. So if you don't know who she is, um, so her story goes that when she was a teenager, when she was only 17 years old, she got into a diving accident, so she misjudged the closeness or the depth of the water, and she broke her neck and got paralyzed. And so when she was 17 years old, she then until now has only been able to move everything, or has not been able to move anything from her neck and down. Uh, so just as a funny side note that I was like, does God really want me to talk about her a lot? Um, I was already done. I printed out my sermon. I was ready, and this was last night, and then I was just browsing through my Twitter, and it turns out today is her 50th, the 50th anniversary of her accident, and so Christianity Today did an article on her, and I was like, oh, that's kind of funny timing, but today, 50, or t- yeah, 50 years ago to the day was when she got paralyzed through that accident. So she started gaining popularity over time because she learned how to paint by placing the paintbrush uh, in between her teeth. And if you were to Google the images and how she paints with her teeth, it's, it's pretty amazing. And then she started becoming more and more influential because she started a, a ministry or an organization to support uh, people who with, with disabilities. She ended up becoming an author and wrote books and devotional books. She's very often um, invited to go speak at events and just has blessed the church in so, so many ways. When I think about her life, again, this is 50 years. She's 67 now, so 50 years of being paralyzed. Since she was a teenager, every single morning, someone needs to get her up, bathe her, help her use the bathroom, clothe her, get her into her wheelchair, and then help her start the day. And every year, over and over and over for 50 years, and if that wasn't enough difficulty, in 2010, she was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer, And so she ended up going through surgery and bouts of chemotherapy. So she's really known suffering. In an interview a handful of years ago, she was asked, Johnny, what do you look forward to most about heaven? And everybody, including myself, I assume, is just expecting her to say something like, I can't wait for heaven where there will be no suffering anymore. Where disease, disability hardship, tears, where none of this stuff will exist. It will be pure joy. Or I expect her to say, I can't wait till heaven where I get to run and jump and play and dance, move, to create, to paint with my hands, not with my teeth. But she didn't say that. 
Here's her response. The best part of heaven is going to be the worship. The best part of heaven is going to be worshiping God while 100% sinless and pure. She didn't say the best part of heaven is going to be free from her suffering or bodily pain or even worshiping God with her body, which in my book would have still been a really encouraging holy answer. She looks forward to worshiping Jesus with sin not in the picture. She's looking internally. When I think about Johnny and her testimony, I imagine someone who has sunk so deeply into this understanding and this digesting and meditating on this idea that God is the great shepherd. We have nothing. There's nothing that we lack. That every decision and every path that the Lord brings us to is for our good and for his glory. And she trusts him. What she looks forward to the most is not the removal of pain or the absence of hardship in her life, but the experience of being with Jesus and worshiping him closely and perfectly. So I see someone whose soul is restored daily by the knowledge of her great care, of his great care for her. And hardship in life doesn't sway that understanding of God's shepherding love, which is exactly actually what the psalmist, what David says in the next verse. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Something, I mean, I mentioned how I like to rush through verses. I, I, I don't know if you have selective reading like me, but when I read this, if, if I'm not focused, if I'm not paying attention, what I do as I read darkness, the valley of the shadow of death, and then I kind of move on. Somehow, my, it's like my eyes just kind of blanked and I went blind for a second in reading the second half. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Do you ever feel like darkness almost somehow, even though it's clearly not the case in scripture, you feel alone, right? We often share like, oh, God abandoned me. Or where was God in this trial? Or why is he letting this happen? Or where are you? And we shake the fist. I do that. But he's, it's, it's, isn't it clear that he's, he's, he's never left us? That the shepherd continues to guide us through every path with great intentionality and perfect purpose. And if we're paying attention, we see like David that we have nothing to fear because he's with us. The rod and staff that David mentions is most likely the same instrument, just the shepherd's staff. But he probably uses it in two ways to say that they're, they're dual functions. One, to tend and to guide and the other to protect, to use as a weapon to fend off predators that might attack the sheep. Something that I find is so important about this psalm and the necessity that we have as a church for it is that he doesn't sugarcoat anything or he doesn't like, just talk about all this positivity, but he points out directly hardship. What I love about this psalm is that it's been like deemed and identified as like the comforting, the, the fuzzy feeling, the blessing psalm. But notice how he talks about difficulty. I love how at the same time he talks about walking in darkness as he talks about marveling in God's care. Couldn't we all use more of that in our, in our walk with Jesus? That we don't make it like oil and water where hardship is over there and when we're feeling blessed and loved by God, it's over there. But David talks about it in the same place. 
I'm walking in darkness and I'm marveling at God's love for me. All at the same time. We see through Johnny Erickson's testimony, the testimony of many other uh, pilgrims of the faith who've gone before us, and through David's writing here, that God's love and a shepherding care is not just experienced in the absence of difficulty, but especially and powerfully experienced in the midst of it, when he strengthens you through it. Even though I walk through darkness, I will fear no evil for you are with me. In verses 5 through 6, we see the image of God as shepherd changed to the image of God as the gracious host. And he writes, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So David creates a picture of being the welcomed guest, where this language of having a table being presented, it was usually back then just a mat laid on the ground, not like, you know, this napkin with a fork and knife and like seven different forks with all their different purpose on each side. You don't know which one to use. But again, he's not this 21st century an American. So he's laying down a, a, a mat usually before the guest of honor and preparing food in front of them. And this, that being the seat of blessing. This is for you. This is my love and my service, my hospitality to you. And then same thing goes with anointing one's head with oil. And so David's response, which we can clearly understand, is this overflowing cup, meaning, man, I am just blessed beyond keeping it in. He makes it so clear that the blessings and the care of his great shepherd is not just bits and pieces here, but lavish. There is abundance and so he's able to close his poem by saying, by saying, Surely goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love the bookends of this psalm. Because David starts by saying, God is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And it's a close. His goodness and kindness will follow me. And he has this confidence and insurance about him and where he's going. When I ask you to think about, like, the tough, strong, like, admirable people in, in this country or, like, the mighty people, um, we tend to think about Navy SEALs, at least in, in the U.S., right? Um, I have an image up here of their training. And if you guys are familiar with their training, uh, the most famous and popular thing that people like to talk about is Hell Week. And if you don't know what Hell Week is, um, it's pretty early on in the training for, for Navy SEALs. And this is also where 75% of people who sign up quit. So they still have months afterwards, but they want to have people be whittled down pretty early on in their training. So what Hell Week is, is from a Sunday evening through Friday, where they are put into the most physically and psychologically demanding tests that will ever be in their lives. In this span from Sunday to Friday, they sleep an average of four hours And meals are given occasionally. Those are their breaks where they actually go into a cafeteria and eat. But a lot of the testimony of uh, the instructors and former SEALs themselves talk about how you're just so sleep deprived, but your hunger doesn't outweigh that. So that there's a lot of guys who fall asleep like on their food and then they're woken up a couple minutes later. All right, we're going out. They didn't even have a chance to eat. Here's a description of Hell Week from the the Navy SEALs uh, government website. Trainees are constantly in motion. 
running, swimming, paddling, carrying boats on their heads, doing log, PT, sit-ups, push-ups, rolling in sand, slogging through mud, paddling boats, doing surf passage. But it can be still just as uh, challenging when you're standing interminably in formation, soaking wet on the beach, up to your waist in water, with the cold ocean wind cutting through you. Mud covers uniforms, hands, faces. The sand chafes raw skin, and salt water makes cuts burn. Students perform evolutions that require them to think, lead, make sound decisions, and functionally operate when they are extremely sleep-deprived, approaching hypothermia, and even hallucinating. So uh, I think last year or two years ago, a movie came out, Lone Survivor, with Mal, uh, starring Mark Wahlberg. And that was actually based on a book of uh, a mission that Navy SEALs went on in Afghanistan. And one of the surviving, or the surviving SEAL came and, and shared his story in the book. And so I want to read an excerpt of Lone Survivor written by um, the uh, former SEAL, Marcus Luttrell. And the way that it starts, I, I whittled it down because I didn't want to take too much time, but... The way that it starts is Sunday evening, him and his team, they're all sleeping. And, it's, and you know, you kind of think that, like, in the military, you get woken up with, like, a, like a bugle, like, you know, like something like a cartoon or like a foghorn even. But these guys, they get woken up by their instructors kicking down the doors and firing machine guns at them. So they're blanks. They're not loaded. They're not going to kill their soldiers. But nonetheless, I can't imagine being woke up to rounds just being, like, like, just unloaded on you as shells hit the ground and are clanking and just chaos, noise and the smell um, and the dust. So this is how the story begins. All of you out. Move, 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 move. Let's go. I struggled to my feet and joined the stampede to the door. We rushed out to the grinder where it was absolute bedlam, gunfire, endless yelling and whistles. And once more, we all hit the deck in the correct position. Artillery, artillery simulators blasted away, and then the instru- instructors opened fire for real, this time with high-pressure hoses aimed straight at us, knocking us down if we tried to get up. The place was awash with water, and we couldn't see a thing. We couldn't hear anything above the artillery fire. Battlefield whistle drills were conducted in the midst of high-pressure water jets, total chaos, deafening explosions, and shouting instructors, crawl to the whistle, crawl to the whistle, and keep your bleeping heads down. Some of the guys were suffering from mass confusion. One of them ran for his life straight over the beach into the ocean. He was a guy I knew really well, and he lost it completely. Lying there in the dark and confusion, freezing cold, soaked to the skin, scared to stand up, by now we were in a state of maximum disorientation. And I heard our instructor snap, send them all into the surf, we'll sort them out later. And off we went again, running hard to the beach, away from the gunfire, away from the madhouse, into the freezing Pacific. The temperature seemed to grow colder as we jogged around in the freezing surf. And finally, they called us out and whistles blew again. We all dived back onto the sand, crawling, itching, burning. Five guys quit instantly and were sent away to the truck. I guess those guys were just thinking ahead dreading the forthcoming five days of hell week. Now we were ordered to grab boats and get them in the surf, which we did without much trouble, but they made us paddle hundreds of yards, dig and row, lift, live, die. We were so exhausted, it didn't matter. We hardly knew where we were. We just floundered on with bloody knees and elbows until they ordered us out of the water. We switched to log PT in the surf. No piece of wood in all history 
except possibly the massive wooden cross carried to Calvary by Jesus Christ was ever heavier than our eight-foot hunk of wood that was manhandled in the Pacific surf. All of our, after all of our exertions, it was a pure backbreaker. Three more men quit. Then the instructors came up something new and improved. They made us carry the boats over the obstacle course. Another man quit. We were down to 46. Eventually, they freed us to get breakfast. Inside the chow hall, some of the guys were shell-shocked. They just sat, staring at their plates, unable to function normally. Seven minutes on the clock, the new shift of instructors was up and yelling, That's it, children. Up. Out of here. Let's get going. Outside. Move. Let's start the day right. Start the day? Was this guy out of his mind? We were still soaked, covered in sand, and we'd been up half killing ourselves all night. Right then I knew for certain there was indeed no mercy in Hell Week. Everything we'd heard was true. You think you're tough, kid? Then go right ahead and prove it. So when reading the articles of the interviews of SEAL instructors, they always say that the strongest, the fastest, the best at swimming, that these guys are not the ones that you can count on on passing. It's the ones with the most, like, devotion, the ones with the strongest will to succeed and to pass. A lot of them say you can just see it in their eyes. They can be scrawny and look out of shape, but it doesn't matter. If you see the drive in their eyes, you know that they're the ones that you can count on passing. And again, these are, I mean, people know about the seal, so you don't sign up for it being a weak person. That would just be foolish. And then 75% of these people end up quitting. So this devotion that they see is just in training. So I imagine... If they're that, they have that much willpower in a training ground, imagine how much ferocity and drive they have when people's lives are actually on the line. When they actually have a mission, where they're actually in or on the battlefield, how much devotion and willpower these guys have. So now many of you are like, weren't we talking about the Psalms? Like, how did we get talking about the military, about people who quit at nothing? Look at verse 6 again with me. I have a reason, I promise. Surely goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life. There's something critical here in the Hebrew that we miss in English, and it's the word follow. The word follow can better be translated, at least in my opinion, pursue. Because if you look up all the other usage of this word in the Bible or in, in, in the Old Testament, it's used in the uh, context of military pursuit. It's used in the context of soldiers being given orders and them going to accomplish them. It's used in the context of of soldiers pursuing enemies in order to hunt them down. It's used with this drive of soldiers where they're going to accomplish their task regardless of what gets in the way and nothing is going to stop them. It has this nuance of this unending, this fervent, relentless pursuit after the goal. Now, I, like you, I'm sure, we get amazed at people like Navy SEALs. Man, the dedication and the the constancy and the relentlessness that these guys have to pass these grueling tests. They also get tested. They get their arms and, and, and ankles bound behind their backs, and they're just thrown into pools, and they have to swim there and bob like 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 dolphins. And then there's a test where they dump things into the bottom of the pool, and they have to pick it up with their teeths. Or teeths? Teeth. Tooths? They have to use their tooths to go pick it up. And it's like, okay, like you might drown, but I mean, we'll resuscitate you if you do. 
Like, this is how tough these guys are. And we get amazed at this military pursuit. But when I think about God, let's just go back to elementary school and think about God. Let's think about how small human beings are compared to God. Let's think about how small our willpower is, our strength is, how how insignificant our accomplishments and our achievements are, how great our our small, what we think is so admirable and grand. Let's think about how minuscule human efforts are in comparison to the Creator. How far, far it falls short. And with this mindset... As my lens, if I read that God is pursuing me with this relentless military-like pursuit, it makes me marvel at what kind of love this really is that's coming after me. If we get amazed that people like the seals who go with this relentless passion, and if they're, what the heck are these men? And how grand is their pursuit compared to the creator of the universe? And David pens that your goodness, your kindness, some translations say mercy, will pursue me all the days of my life. It makes me think, I think, it makes me think and wonder, my definitions of God's love for me are small. They're small. And this isn't a one-time thing. It's not just occasional. But he says, all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So after walking through with, through with David in this psalm and ending in this confident statement of assurance of God's love, it doesn't that beautifully like it's like a sandwich doesn't it beautifully point back to verse one the way that we started if you believe and are able to take on for yourself and make this your own personal prayer can't you alongside with david confidently with assurance say the lord is my shepherd i lack nothing i have nothing to fear i have every good thing and provision in my life in application, I mean, some of you have already memorized it. Others have memorized it in multiple languages. Um, my dad, he, he wasn't a Christian growing up, but he was, you know, in churchy things. And he even could sing a song in Korean that is just almost word for word, Psalm 23. Um, it's just, we know it, but if you don't or if, if you're not fully memorized, I want to encourage you to memorize it and recite it. I know that just, just seems like the most, like, like, of course, the pastor is going to say that type of encouragement or, or request or application for you all. But I cannot emphasize further how much the importance of knowing, reciting, and believing God's word in your mind will change your heart and your posture when you need it most. What else is going to help you when you're in the darkest times, when you're able to say, even though I walk through great darkness, I fear nothing for you are with me. Or when you feel like you're panicking and you're fearful and, and you don't know like your next job or your next place in life or your next city or your, what, your next relationships or what's going to happen. What more 
He's going to address that in exactly the right way, but God's word saying, I lack nothing. I have everything that I need in Jesus. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides calm and still waters. He restores my soul. And when you feel like the love of God is not present, when you feel overly guilty as if he's mad at you or as if you're so dirty that how could he love you? I hope you remember this relentless pursuit and this confident prayer by David, who is also a sinner, by the way. Surely goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Psalm 23, David writes that the Lord is a shepherd. And centuries later, Jesus will refer to himself in the same way. He identifies himself as the good shepherd. So I'm not putting it up on the screen. I would just invite you to listen. If you want, close your eyes. Just receive. From John 10, as Jesus speaks this of himself. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. That man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you see how much repetition, right? We always talk about that Bible study notes. When you see repetition in the Bible, it's like bling, bling, bling. You got to pay attention. And Jesus' repetition, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life again, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. So what David saw so many years before Jesus came to earth was the heavenly father, the good shepherd who guides, protects, blesses, cares for. And it's in Jesus we find the good shepherd who does all of those things and cements them and secures them in his cross and in his blood, in his death, his sacrifice, in his resurrection, in his current reigning. Jesus proves the breadth of his love for us, that he is the guide, that he is the provider, that he is the protector, that he is the one who blesses and caretaker. He's the one that cares for us. And he cements that and ultimately secures it in his blood. And so, friends, yes, I encourage you all to memorize it, and I hope you do. But the other side is whether you believe it or not. You can memorize plenty of things but not have the conviction and belief. And if you struggle and sway in that belief, I'm going to ask you to look to Christ and how his blood and the nails just nail all of this truth in. So today as a church, I'm praying for us to... Deeply in our souls be reminded and comforted by this truth. Jesus is our great shepherd. So we lack nothing. 
Let us be the church that prays with the psalmist today and as we continue to walk in this journey of faith. Let's bow and pray together. God, won't you restore all of our souls? Would you just breathe life and vitality into us and refresh us because we hear your word? Because we have this gift in Psalm 23 that your servant David wrote many, many years ago. And because although this is an ancient poem, that it matters just as much to us in the church today as it did many years ago. So, Father, we want to, alongside of our brother David, pray these prayers and believe them deeply inside of our hearts. That you are our caretaker. That even through difficult seasons, Lord, you are right there with us, and therefore we have nothing to be afraid about. That you abundantly bless us by anointing our heads with oil by providing in so many ways and by lavishly loving on us, God, even when we least deserve it, so much so that our cup overflows. And we all, by your Holy Spirit's ministry over us, have great, great confidence and assurance because of the cross of Jesus that your goodness, your kindness, your steadfast love and mercy will fiercely pursue us all the days of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We love you and want to, in return, lay our lives down before you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.